So uh, if you're just joining us or you haven't been with us for a while, we've been in a series called I Am, and we've been looking at the seven I Am statements in the book of John, in the gospel of John. And um, we're, we're almost to the end now, actually. We, we've looked at all the kind of these, there are these seven statements in particular in the book of John where uh, Jesus uses these metaphors to talk about who he is, to explain um, really his, his work and his identity, you know, what he's come to do and how we can have uh, faith in him. And, you know, we've looked at, he's called himself the bread of life in John 6. You know, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's called himself the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, how he reveals truth, how he reveals what is right and wrong, what is, what is true and what is false, how he is the door of the sheep. He's the only door. We can only enter by him to be saved and to go in and out and have pasture, and that he is the good shepherd. He's the leader, really, of his people. He's, he's the, the good leader of his people uh, that lays down his life for his sheep. And then just last week, we looked at how he calls himself the resurrection, the resurrection and the life. Of course, that's coupled with the miracle of Lazarus coming back to life, how he very uh, easily kind of just looks into death, looks into the face of death and says, Lazarus, come out. Right? That, that death, which is one of our kind of great obstacles as people, as humans, to Jesus really is nothing that he can command death with just three words. With just three words, he can tell um, a dead man to, to be alive. Now, we're, we're nearing the end here. Uh, there are just a couple more. We're going to look at today the way, the truth, and the life, and then the, the true vine, which we'll look at next week. And what's happening here in the context of, of the text is that Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry. So he's really coming towards the end. In fact, the passage that we're going to look at is part of what's called the upper room discourses. It's really the end just before he goes to the cross. And his disciples know that this is, or, or, I'm sorry, his disciples don't know, but Jesus knows that this is the end. And he's preparing his disciples for what is going to come. Right? He wants, to, he wants to comfort them. And he's going to talk about, uh, this is the way that he he believes is the best way to comfort them to, to speak about this kind of I am statement, which we'll talk about today, the way, the truth, and the life, and really what that means. And, and I'm going to give you kind of the, big, the three big things that he's going to say to comfort them, um, and then we'll go through it. But one is that there's a greater home. There's a greater home that Jesus has prepared. There's a greater way that Jesus is and there's a greater work for us to be a part of there's a, a greater home a greater way and a greater work and that's what we're going to look at today and so if you guys have your bibles let's go ahead and open them up to the book of john john chapter 14 we're going to start in verse one if you don't have your bible you can just look up here um, at the screen john chapter 14 we'll read from verse one all the way through verse uh, 14 but we'll take it uh, one piece at a time John chapter 14, verse 1, this is God's word, and it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So let's pause right there for a second. So once again, the first way in which Jesus kind of comforts his disciples in, in lieu of his impending departure is that he gives them this truth. He says, there is a greater home. There's a greater home that he is preparing. Right? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, they don't know exactly why yet their hearts should be troubled. But they are about to have a really, uh, a, something really tough that's lying ahead. And this is often kind of, you know, the way that I talk about it in terms of the way that I think about it for the disciples. You have to get into the disciples' shoes for a moment and think about what they're about to go through. They don't know yet, but Jesus knows. So imagine just for us to put it in our own context, imagine you, whatever you're doing, whatever your job is, right, that you leave your job and you go to be a part of this, like, startup. You know, it's a, it's a tech company. It's a charter school, whatever. It's a new kind of hospital. It's, a it's something that's in a different way than what you're used to, but for you to be a part of it and you're working with, like, the greatest doctor, the greatest counselor, the greatest administrator, teacher, whatever, the, the kind of craziest person who has all this buzz and who's leading this new movement and you decide to be a part of it, but you do an unpaid internship for three years following this person around and you're being mentored and you feel like you're, you're doing really crazy things and people are being taught or healed or whatever. And really, you haven't been paid anything you haven't had any official position and this company is about to fold right and also the ceo is going to get arrested and tried and convicted wrongfully and so even your your letter of rec his letter of rec is not going to mean anything to you you're just going to be back out on the street where you started except you have nothing to show for the past three years at least that's what you think that's what you're going to think is going to happen that's what's going to happen to the disciples and so jesus is preparing them saying, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to leave. I am going to leave. I'm going to go away. But me going away is actually a good thing. It's a better thing for you. It's better for you that I leave and prepare the real home for you, a place. And he could call it anything, right? He could say, I'm leaving to heaven. And he could say, I'm leaving to paradise. But he says, no, I'm going to my father's house. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to personally prepare a place for you so that you will have a permanent place in my father's house. He guarantees it. Because I'm going to make sure, I'm going to make sure it's going to happen. Now, when people tell us that they're going to make sure something is going to happen, you know, sometimes we could trust them, but none of us can really guarantee anything. But Jesus can. Like even less we trust when someone says, I'll try. I'll try my best. It just means probably not going to get it done. But Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. I will definitely do it. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. He's talking about a greater home that we have in him. Now, that's really good news for us. Now, why is that good news? Now, Because in, in some ways... 
we can get messed up, you know, with this kind of, with this kind of thing. But, but let me explain why this is actually really good news that there is a greater home, there's a real home, a true home for us, and it's not this place. Um, I think it speaks to our sense of displacement here. That we don't quite ever feel at home here. This place isn't home, and we know it because whether we're talking about the world, there are just some things that aren't right, that aren't quite right. And we know it. There's injustice. There's poverty. There are people who get sick. There is, you know, kind of racism and, and just these things that are not right in the world. And so it's good for us to know that this isn't the final place. This isn't where we should really be thinking about as home. But not only that, I think we have a, a personal kind of understanding of this. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but for me, like, and for many of us, we're, we have, we're like children of immigrant parents, right? And so for me, that means I grew up at odds with my own culture. Like when I was in elementary school, well, I, you know what, I should just say, like when I went to high, when I went to high school, um, I, I went to a high school that was like mostly Asian, right? A ton of Koreans. And one day I heard something at, at, in my, this is like junior high, high school, this is junior high, high school together, right? So I go there and I hear this girl say something that I've never heard before, right? And she said, KP, <laughs> that's what she said, KP, Korean pride, right? And I was like, what is that, <laughs> right? Like I've never, what, what, what? Like what is that? And I think I was thinking at the moment like, what are, what are you proud about? Like, what is, it, what is it exactly that you are so, what are you, what are you representing? Like, I don't understand this. Because I, I went to an elementary school. I was like, one, I was like one of two Korean kids, right, in my, in my class. And so I didn't, really I didn't really think about myself, I think, in that way. And I didn't, and I was kind of at odds with being different. Like, I didn't want to be different. Not that there was, there was no real predominant. I mean, there's probably more white people than anything else. But it wasn't really predominant. It was very eclectic. There were a, a bunch of different kind of people there. But I didn't really think, oh, I'm, I'm like Korean and I have to represent my Koreanness, or I really want to, I want that to be a part of me. I just really wanted to think about that. And then I went to high school, which was totally different. And all of a sudden, I, I never thought like that before. And a lot of, a lot of people, so I, <laughs> I went to a magnet school. So I was one of three kids from my school that went to that school. And all the other kids that came from other schools, they all had a ton of friends already. And a lot of them already were like really like, oh, yeah, Asian pride and we listen to Korean music and all this stuff. And I was like not really familiar with a lot of this. And so I didn't really feel like part of that. But then I didn't really feel, I mean, I knew I wasn't white either or I wasn't, you know, just American. Like that's also weird. And so there's a, just kind of a, a feeling of, like, uh, well, I don't know. Am I this? Am I that? Where do I belong? What's, what's home? If I went to Korea, which I've never been to Korea, I've been to a ton of other countries, but I've never been to Korea, I definitely wouldn't feel at home there either. You know, I'm not going to, I wouldn't be like, oh, because my Korean's terrible now. And um, I would just be like, I would feel weird. I'm like, this isn't home either. I think for all of it, and it doesn't matter if you're, you have immigrant parents or not, 
none of us really feels like 100% at home, wherever we are. There is something about us. There is a certain otherness that we all can identify with. There is a sense of wandering, exile. And in fact, that's a, that's a really biblical idea. right? God's people are wandering throughout most of the Bible. They are in exile throughout most of when you look at what's happening, they're, they're searching to get to a place or they're getting kicked out of a place or they're getting conquered by somebody and kicked out of a place and longing to go home. And there is a bunch of passages, in fact, for God's people who are in exile. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to read some passages from the Old Testament. This is from Ezekiel 36. It says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. So he's saying they're, in, they're not in, you know, where they're supposed to be. And he's saying, I'm going to cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Right. So kind of the, the soil that was bad is going to be made fertile instead of being the desolation that was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. So people, when they see it, they're going to say, oh, this land that was totally like a wasteland, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. Now, this is from Isaiah 35. It says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. That's a, a rose. Uh, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. So when it talks about the land, it talks about the desert. It's going to become this, this beautiful kind of garden. Right. Uh, this is later. Uh, this is Isaiah 35, verse 5. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I've never been lame and I have also never leapt like a deer. Have you ever leapt like a deer? I, I haven't. I don't know what that's like. And he's saying the lame man. Right? The man who was unable to, to move, he's going to leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute is going to sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This from Isaiah 19. This is the last one. Isaiah 19. It says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now you're really like, what? Who cares? Right? Well, Egypt and Assyria, at the time when this is written, they're at war. They're basically taking turns conquering nations. And he's saying they're going to worship together. In fact, and later in this passage, it says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So Egypt and Assyria are countries that conquered Israel right, and took them into captivity and who exiled them out from their own land. And God says, well, there's going to be a time in the real home, right, when my true home comes, where Egypt and Assyria and Israel will, will worship side by side and they'll be my people. See, this stuff, Israel eventually, when they're in exile, when all these things are being prophesied, uh, they come back. Seventy years later, they come out of captivity, they go back to their land. But these prophecies are not really fulfilled, right? The people physically come back, 
But spiritually, there's always this sense that they're not home, that everything hasn't been righted yet. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. See, we weren't built for this world. All the dissatisfaction you feel, the, the sense that things are not exactly as they should be, work is not exactly as it should be, and family is not exactly as it should be, and my friendships and my relationships are not exactly as they should be. Something is deficient. Something is missing. Well, it's a, it's a symptom of something. It's a symptom of something true that those things will not be remedied here. There's no perfect here. There's a longing in our hearts that we have for home. I think the older we get also, the more we understand this, like the more displaced we become. When you're a child, right, you, you kind of do have a good sense of like, I am home and I, I have these traditions and I have these things. But when you get older, even your nostalgia starts to get exposed, right? You're like, oh, was it really as good as I remember it? You know, like I remember all the, I always say like, I, I feel like I have false memories about you know, we're entering the holiday season, so this is very relevant. But I feel like I have false memories about my, my holidays as a child, you know, because I remember, like, like, being under the tree, and I'm, like, opening presents, and everyone's smiling and stuff, you know. But then it's, like, snowing outside, but I've never lived outside of California, Southern California, so that can't be true. You know, and, like, everybody's, like, it's all just a joyous time, and I'm, like, you know, I'm thinking about my parents and my family. I don't really think that's how it was. I think that's just how we remember it. Now, the reason Jesus saying this isn't home is good is that we don't have to try to make it home. We don't have to think that, oh, well, it being imperfect, something is wrong with it. Because, in fact, Jesus tells us, no, 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 there is a perfect home that's waiting for us. It's just not here. So our point in being here can't be just to make a home. It can't be just to be as comfortable as possible. There's a better place that he himself prepares, and he guarantees our space there. So the, the first thing he says is there's a, there's a better, there's a greater home that he guarantees for us. And then he says there's a greater way. There's a greater way. Right, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He reminds us, he says, he himself is the way. Because Thomas is like, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going? And Jesus says, it's not so much like when he talks about preparing a place, when he says, I'm going to my father's house, it's not like he is pointing or he's thinking about some geographical location on a map. That's what Thomas is thinking. Obviously, they're still thinking in the physical reality, right? But he's talking about something spiritual. He's saying, no, it's not, it's not a physical geographical place. He's saying, the way is me. I'm the way. 
I'm the way. Most prominently is what he's saying is I'm the way. And the truth and the life, of course, follow. And he's talked about that. But answering Thomas's question, Thomas's question is, what's the way? He says, I am the way. Not I show the way. Right? So he's not saying, I'm, sh- I'm going to show you the way. I'm going to tell you the way. Here is the way, Thomas. Read your Bible. Pray. Go to church. Go on missions. Love people. Be kind. Be patient. Be generous. Do these things, and you will be on the way. No, Jesus didn't say that. He says, I'm the way. Now, this certainly speaks to our, what we think about religion. You know, performance-based religion is devastating because no one can no one can keep it right this this law like and that would be if jesus said here's the way here are a ton of law that's what the law was right the the laws in the old testament when he gave moses the laws it was basically to point out the fact that no human could ever keep that like no one is capable of doing that so if he said if thomas says well what's the way and if he is understanding what Jesus is saying, and he's talking about spiritual, what is the spiritual way to be saved, or even what is the spiritual way to truth and life, and Jesus says, here are the ways, here's all the ways. We, if we don't have Jesus, now this, this will sound very obvious if you're a Christian, because you'll think, of course, but if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. Being nice, being kind, being patient, being generous. Without Jesus, that's not the way. Remember how we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, Matthew 7, wide is the road that leads to destruction. A lot of people are on it. That's because all the things outside of Jesus, they're all on the wide road. Just take Jesus out, right? Try to have Christianity without Jesus. Don't just take that, remove that offensive piece. Just take Jesus out of it and still be nice and still do good things and love your neighbor and, you know, be kind and, you know, obey your parents. Like, do, do all the things that the Bible says. Just don't have Jesus as a part of it. Well, that's still just the wide road. So when we think, like, oh, well, I'm, I'm really growing in my Christianity, although I'm not growing in Jesus. Well, that's just the wide road. That's the way to destruction. A lot of people are on that. The narrow road is when you say, well, Jesus alone, Jesus alone is the exclusive component, the most important Part. He's, not, he's not showing me the way. He is the way. If I don't have him, I don't have the way. Jesus being the way, it's not natural to us. It's not. Right? He's gonna, he himself will lead us to all kinds of uncomfortable things. And here's the thing. When, you, when we make religion into anything that doesn't include Jesus himself, then we can always tailor it. We can always shift it and adjust it so that it fits us. We can always take bits and pieces of it and say, well, I like this, and this part is doable, so I can do this part, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add these things to my life, and I'm going to make it work. Right? But when you follow Jesus himself, when he himself is the way, you can't do that. He never lets us do that. He never lets us get away with that, where we are tailoring things, where we're shifting things, where things fit us. 
It, it's really like there is a real emptiness. You, you know, I talk about consumer Christianity all the time, right? And the reason I talk about it is because it's a big temptation for us in the culture that we live in. But also, it's really empty. There, there is a deep emptiness to consumer, the consumer version of Christianity. Like, there's an empty joy to consumerism. Like, we all know it. There is, in fact, there is, you know, there are like neurological studies. When you buy something, I, I bought something this week. I bought a phone. But a new phone, right? So I buy this phone. It's on sale, you know, for, you know, th Thanksgiving. And so, and I, and I bought it. And I was like, you know, oh, cool. Like, I'm going to get a phone. It's like 400 bucks off. Like, awesome, right? And I'm thinking about it. And then I, I buy it. And then I get it. And it's like, right when you buy it, I had to, I went to Best Buy because they had a sale, right? So I go and I'm like, I'm getting it. And I pick it up and I have it. And I'm like, wow, awesome, right? I got it. And I was like, so happy getting it. That was like Friday <laughs> or Thursday. Right? I'm, I'm already over it. Like it's over. It was over, you know, Thursday at 8. Like I got the phone at 5. It was over by 8, right? I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Oh, I'm going to, you know, do all my stuff. Take some pictures. It's a great camera. Take some pictures. And then it's like, oh, it's, it's over now. It was, it was fun. And there's, in fact, right, like if you actually put hope in that, which I did when I, when I bought this phone. You know, like when you do that, there's kind of like a, an emptiness. Like there's a loneliness that follows, right? There is something neurological that actually happens when you buy something, a little like something is released in your brain. I forget if it's dopamine or endorphins or whatever, but something, right? Like your pleasure, your pleasure the pleasure center of your brain, it lights up a little bit, right? So you get a little happy, but then it, it, it dissipates very quickly. And so you're left afterwards with this kind of like, oh, I'm just left now by myself and my whatever, you know, my car or my phone or my, you know, my laptop. Like, cool. Like, my new shoes. Like, it's really empty. And a lot of us, we try to come into Christianity like that. Like, I want this consumer Christian. I want this thing. I'm going to judge everything. I'm going to look at everything. I'm going to evaluate it, right? I'm going to check out. You know, and a consumer, I, I, I don't know. I, I, can't, I, don't, I can't speak to this too much because it, it's so ubiquitous in our culture. It's just a part of our culture because there's churches everywhere. And, like, how can you not visit 100 churches and then, you know, decide which one is the best one based on, like, programs and, you know, preaching and worship and all this kind of stuff? Of course, like, that's kind of, that's kind of just where we're at. So it's hard to even talk about what you would do outside of that. But if you come in with that understanding and that mentality and, you know, forget about church for a second. If you do that with Jesus and you say, Jesus, here's what I want. Fix my job. Help me be more patient. You know, make me love people. But don't let people get too close to me. I never want to confess things. I don't want to look weak or vulnerable. You know, I want people to see me in a positive light. Maybe give me a little power. Give me a title here. Like, make me feel important. Uh, you'll just be left with something empty that only you know. Expectations that only you have. And you'll feel really alone. This is a quote from a book that we're, leading, we're reading in our leadership. It's called Uncomfortable by Brett McCracken. It says, talking about one's personal dream church is an exercise in not only futility, but flat-out gospel denial. 
The church does not exist to meet our comfort zone preferences, but rather to destabilize them, to jostle us awake from the dead-eye stupor of a culture of comfort worship that impedes our growth. Right? It says, the church does not exist to meet our comfort zone preferences, but rather to destabilize them. See, what you need in your life is not people who will do what you want them to do and what you expect them to do. That's not what you need. What you need is people who will come into your life and destabilize it, who will mess it up, right? Like people who will be annoying, <laughs> you know, people who are going who are, who are to force you to, like if you have ever prayed, oh, God, make me patient, you know what you're praying for, right? You know what you're praying for. You're, you're praying for somebody who's going to test your patience to come into your life. God, make me generous. Well, if you really want to be generous, then the giving has to be sacrificial. So really what you're praying for is for financial troubles. Teach me to sacrifice. Well, then you're praying for your life to be really busy and for God to send you someone who's in trouble. Jesus never meant for his people those who would carry on his movement. He's, he's saying this to his disciples who are going to carry on this movement after he leaves. And he never meant for them to be self-consumed, right, to seek comfort. In Luke 9, he says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Have you ever said that? in your mind or out loud or at a retreat or something or at a rally. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Follow me and you will be homeless, is what Jesus is saying. Follow me and you will not concern yourself with making a home because you will believe that I am the way. The sense of home that we so desperately seek. See, it lies ahead, but this also is Jesus' comfort. But I myself will give you the sense of that home. So yes, in its finality, it's only someday down the line after we die. But if you want to taste it, if you want to know it, if you want to step into the reality of it, right? I mean, do you know why we worship? Why, why do we gather here to worship? It's to give us a sense of the home that we long for, right? And when your heart is engaged here in worship, when you sing songs to God as though they're true, as though you're, you're kind of like preaching to yourself, like you are singing this truth into your life, then that's when you have a sense of home, right? When you pray to Jesus and he answers you, that's when you have a sense of home because he himself is the way. And here's the final thing that he says. He says, there are greater works. There are greater works for us to be a part of. Let's read the rest of this passage. Philip said to him, first it was Thomas, now it's Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And he's talking about his own relationship with the Father, right? When he says, I'm the way, he's saying, I'm, I, I am God, you know, and the Father and I, we're in this intimate fellowship. So I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. If you know me, you know the Father. If you know me, you know God. And then he says, if you don't believe on account of kind of like what I'm saying, believe on account of the works themselves. So he's talking about the signs that he himself has performed, right? The miraculous signs. In verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So there's a greater home that we long for. There's a greater way in Jesus himself. He says, there are greater works. There are greater works even than Jesus himself performed while he was on earth for us to be a part of. Right? Disciples, they're going dis- <laughs> to be despondent. Uh, what are they going to do? <laughs> that's, sorry, is that inside joke. But, you know, what, what are they... <laughs> What are they going to do? What are they going to do after this when they are, when, when everything that they thought was going to happen isn't going to happen, right? So they thought they were going to have a title. They thought they were going to be set for life. They thought Jesus was going to be king, and they were going to be his, 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 his guys, you know, his, his entourage. So he was going to hook them up. He was going to get them jobs. He was going to get them titles, right? They were going to be somebodies, and none of that's going to happen. So how, does he, how is he going to prepare them for that? He says, guys, there is much greater stuff for you in store. There, there is stuff for you that is greater than what I did. So, you know, how can Jesus say that? Right? No, well, a couple things. Like he can't mean that they are more, there's more even though that could make sense, but that's not really what he's saying. If you look at the grammar, that just doesn't work. There's another word he could use to say more, and that's not what he says. He also probably doesn't mean that we are going to do more spectacular or more supernatural works. But what he's saying is what he's about to do, what Jesus is about to do, the singular thing that he's about to do to go to the cross, this is going to be the greatest work in human history, right? Everything that was before it was pointing forward to it. Everything that follows it points back to it. So this that he's going to accomplish, him bearing the sin of all humanity on his shoulders and taking it to the cross and crucifying it forever, that, that, you know, all of your sin being put to death by Jesus dying and it being rendered powerless by Jesus being raised that work is going to make everything that follows different. Because up until this point, that work hadn't been accomplished. Everything after that, right, and like where we are right now, the fact that Jesus has already died, that he has demonstrated how much God loves his people, not just symbolically, but like actually, because he, he really died. That makes the things that we do incredible. There is a powerful work that Jesus has 
for you to do. So whatever gospel work God has for you today, what he's saying is we must engage in it. We must take part in it. In fact, he's not even saying we must, right? He's saying there is something so much better than living in this world with the goal of trying to be comfortable, like of thinking that this is home, of thinking that the way of the world is the way. And so for me to kind of just live my life, work my job, kind of aimlessly accumulate as much money as I can, as much uh, kind of prominence as I can, to be as comfortable as I can in my home for as much as I can, to go on as many you know, trips as I can and to enjoy, kind of, kind of just hedonistically enjoy my life to the fullest. He's saying, that's, that's boring. That's not, that's not a greater work. That's just like nothing. That denies everything that I'm saying, that there is a greater home and that Jesus himself is the greater way and that there is some greater work that far surpasses that, that's greater than what Jesus himself did. He's saying no. Now, last week, I, I, I brought this up um, in the resurrection, that he changes every if only into this too, right? Every if only, like if only, remember how Mary and Martha were like, if only you had been here, Jesus, then this wouldn't have happened, right? Lazarus wouldn't have died. But Lazarus dying was to God's glory. Jesus did that on purpose. He waited until Lazarus died. And then he resurrected Lazarus so that there would be this greater testimony, right? Now, when God changes your if-onlys into this twos, like when God changes the things that have happened in your life from I wish this didn't happen, I wish I'd never done that. I wish my parents hadn't done that. I wish this didn't go wrong. Like when he changes that into this too, God used for his glory. This too, God had something for. He turned it for good. When he changes that, that story becomes incredible. That's an incredibly redemptive story that God has for each one of us. When you share that story, remember the woman at the well? In John 4, the Samaritan woman who Jesus comes up to and says, you have five husbands, you've had five husbands, and the, the man that you're staying with now isn't your husband. He's, he's, he's exposing her, right? He's pointing out her sin. That's shameful, right? That's embarrassing. That's pain for her. But once she realizes who Jesus is, she goes back to her town who she's been avoiding. She goes to the well at noon so she doesn't have to talk to anyone ever, and when she realizes who Jesus is, she goes back to her town and she says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, obviously, everyone knows her reputation. Everyone knows what she's done. But for her, it turned from, if only this had never happened, into, wow. Even this, Jesus has used, God has used to know that God is using you. All your broken, sad messiness, all your redeemed pain and shame that it's meaningful to bless others to heal others to rebuild people from the ground up to give them hope to give them a taste of joy and of home that is an incredible work to engage in and i hope 
that we engage in it. Now, I just want to say something, okay, in closing, um, to encourage you. You know, those of you who are faithfully stepping into that work, or even if you're not, that you would, um, you know, and, and, I, and that's it's going to look different, right? It might be a faithful presence to your coworkers. It might be serving them well, sharing the gospel with them. It might be reaching out to people in need. In your neighborhood, it might be loving your family well, especially coming to this season. I know it's tough. There's a lot of family things that happen. There's a lot of drama usually that takes place. And being patient and loving and forgiving, not easy. Sacrificing for your spouse, sacrificing for your parents, serving those in the church, loving your kids, providing a sense of home for those who feel displaced. These are not easy or comfortable things, but they are greater works. If we do that to the glory of God in Christ, they are incredible works. And so let me just say this. Um, Boomy and I, we're, we're, uh, we're sitting at home on Sunday night. So, uh, you know, we were, like, hanging out with some of you guys, right? And afterwards, we get home, and um, we're just in our, we're just in Micah's room, and, um, you know, Micah's getting ready for bed. And um, so a lot of you guys know, we've been, uh, we've been potty training Micah. It's been, it's been almost a year now, okay, literally. We started last winter, last winter break. You know, since Boomi's a teacher, she has winter break off, right? So during winter break, we were like, we got we to gotta get him to get potty trained. And there was all this pressure, you know, so we really tried. And we tried to just do it, like, fast. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, he peed all over me, right, a couple times. And uh, so that didn't work. And then we, the next couple months, we were really trying. And then finally, he learned a little bit. He learned to, to pee in the, in the toilet. I'm sorry I'm talking about pee and poo a lot, but, you know, um, he, he learns that, and then for the next, since, basically since, like, uh, March maybe until now, we've been trying to get him to poo in the toilet. He hasn't, right? We've been putting a diaper on him every night. He's very regular, and so he goes at the same times every day and just in a diaper every single day. And we try to, like, we put him on the, we put him on the toilet. You know, he doesn't go. He cries. You know, he does all these kind of crazy things. He doesn't do it. And so we're sitting there on Sunday. Boomy and I are talking about the week. We're like, okay, what do we have this week? What are we going to do? We're like prepping for Monday. And then Micah, he's sitting on the toilet. He goes, I did it. And he goes, I did it. And then he gets off the toilet. <laughs> he's like, you know, naked. He, he actually was completely naked because we were getting ready for bath time. He gets up and he starts like, he's, he's like, I did it, right? And he's jumping around and he's like spinning in circles. Okay, now, so we had to, you know, we're like, did he really do it, right? So we're skeptical. So I look inside. Boomy looks inside first, and she goes, he did it, right? She looks, she goes, he did it. And I'm like, I'm like still skeptical, right? So I look inside, and I see that he did it. And then literally, we are jumping up and down, okay, in our home. I'm spinning in circles, I've never, I haven't done that in my entire life, actually. I tried to think of a moment in my whole life when I did that, and I never, ever did, like, not when I graduated, certainly not when I got married or, like, when we had a kid. Like, I was literally telling Boomy, like, this is the most excited I've ever been in my life, including marriage, kids, pregnancy, like, anything. 
right? Like anything that's ever happened anywhere, my own salvation, like there's nothing. I've never been happier than I am right now. I'm jumping up. It sounded like we were having, like there was an earthquake at our house. It's no joke, okay? And it happened later <laughs> the next day when Just Boomy was with him, and I heard it from upstairs. I thought, I, I literally did this. I was sitting there on my computer, and I heard it, and I, I got it real fast. Like I was going to run upstairs. I was like, oh, shoot, they're jumping up and down. That's what's happening because I thought, a bull had like got into our room or something somehow and was stampeding around. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> the reason I bring this up, okay, is because, you know, parenthood, for all its struggles and limitations, it's been a gift in this, in this sense that it gives me insight into God's heart, right? And God is a good father, Right? A, a loving and a gracious father who loves us. Like, you have to think about it. He doesn't just love us like his son, which in and of itself would be crazy, right? But the love that he has for us, he has sacrificed his own son to demonstrate. Right? There, there's probably not anything I could do more than to sacrifice one of my children, you know, f- like to save someone's life. Right? That would certainly be harder than sacrificing my own life. And that's, that's the love. That's the love that God has. And the reason I bring that up is because when Micah pooed in a in a circle, right? I was so happy. Like, I didn't know I could be that happy. I was so happy. Do you know I was so happy? Because for a year, like, I've sat right next to him and said, just, just go in there. Like, you can do it. And then he says, no, I can't, right? And then he cries. And I'm like, oh, man, like, you could do it, right? Like, I know you can do it. All people have done this, right? Like, I've been doing this for 30 plus years. You can do it. I know you can do it, right? But, like, sitting there next to him and him not doing it, like, over and over and over again. And then he finally did it. And do you know what I did? I jumped up and down. And I spun around in circles because I was so happy. And I didn't say, what took you so long? I didn't say, what have you been doing this whole time? Like, what's wrong with you? No, I was just, I was overjoyed. Do you know, do you know God is like right next to you and he's like, just, you could do it. Like, you could do it. Go talk to them. You could do it. Oh my gosh, you could do it. Like, you can power through. You can do it. I know you can do it. It's scary, yes. There is some risk involved, yes. You're going to be a little uncomfortable. Yes, you are changing your entire life. Like your whole paradigm of using the restroom is going to change now. It's going to be different forever. But it'll be better. You can do it. I know you can. That's why I died for you. That's why I rose again. I'm going to be with you every single step of the way. That's what God is saying to us. Let us trust in him. 
together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for just what an amazing God you are. How much you love us, God. I really, you know, I'm, I'm realizing more and more how little I understand the depth of your love or maybe it's how um, much I underestimate, God, who you are. Um, we ask that you would help us to see you, Jesus, for who you are. Your way is not natural to us. Um, the home that you have for us is not, you know, it, it takes away, I think, some of our illusion of comfort here, God. And your work is not the work um, that we have for ourselves. It's not the one that we kind of think about. Certainly, it's not the one we have control of. But all of it is so much better. Would you give us faith? Would you give us courage? Would you give us strength, God, to really step into who you are and who you say we are because of all that you have done? Thank you so much. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.